This and the next few episodes were recorded before the coronavirus outbreak, which is why they don't reference it or refer to it at all. We hope these conversations can provide at least a temporary break from the day's news. For now, stay safe, stay healthy, and enjoy the show. The reason that brass keys haven't changed in like 100 plus years is because the cycle time for average door lock is about 30 to 35 years. You know, vehicle keys have changed massively in the last 5, 10, 15 years because the cycle time for a car is so much shorter. So when you look at the actual adoption rates necessary to really move the needle for the brass key market, under astronomical assumptions where today every new home does not have a physical key and people are retrofitting at high rates. All that said, we want to accelerate that process. Every business, whether or not they realize it, is an idea business. The people at Gray have a long history of creating famously effective ideas. And so, with Gray Matter, we explore the ideas shaping our world. We ask creative minds from all corners of life how they came up with their best ideas. And that's what matters for Gray Matter. On this episode of Gray Matter, we'll learn about the unexpected complexity behind a very simple idea. And we'll learn how one man found room for innovation in one of the oldest, most everyday things, a key. Hi, I'm John Petrolis, Worldwide Chief Creative Officer at Gray. And this week's idea is Key Me. We'll speak with founder and CEO Greg Marsh and discover how his idea of retail key kiosks required cooperation of three completely different industries. Our interviewer is Gray's Chief Innovation Officer, Dan Bennett, who talks to Greg about all it took to launch Kimi and when he felt like he'd had his first success. Kimi is a security technology company famous for its digital key kiosks and retail locations. Founded in 2012, it has disrupted the $12 billion lock and key industry and expanded rapidly in New York City, creating an ease of use for a problem that people had just come to accept. You'll hear Dan Bennett speak first, but this is Greg Marsh. Last night I got home um, and uh, I, I typically don't lock our front door. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why I don't, but I don't. And my wife has started to tell me that we should. And so she has started doing it. And I got home last night to an empty house and a locked door um, and was, was unceremoniously locked out. And it's cold right now in New York. And Greg asked me how I solved that problem. And because I'm not a Kimi member, my solution was to go to the pub and wait for her to come home. So, um, which my, ordinarily I would say we can deliver a co- better customer experience, but I think I think the pub probably beats the occasionally. Deliver, the pub yeah. might win, <laughs> but in general, yours definitely wins. So, um, let's get into the idea. So, so we know that the genesis of the idea was from your wife getting locked out, but how do you take that and think I can solve that problem for millions of people? So we, you know, it's kind of interesting. We, the focus of the company early on was pretty narrow, and it was really. Hey, I think it'd be really interesting if we could store key information digitally and allow someone to access that information without having their key so that they could get a copy and solve a lockout in this really interesting way. And as we kind of thought more about that, we're like, hey, we might as well just be able to provide key duplication services if we're going to create some kind of machine that can actually make keys in that scenario. And that was really the, the primary focus. And what's happened over the last you know, seven, eight years as the company's evolved is every year we're kind of continually, I'd say, broadening the vision for the company. And so, you know, we kind of migrated away from just a couple of brass keys to much more sophisticated keys, like we do vehicle transponder keys now at like half the price of the dealership. We even do RFID key cards or key fobs. Um, 
And what's happened is as we as we grew our kiosk footprint and started doing all these different keys, our company started receiving tens of thousands of uh, locksmith calls for people who have urgent locksmith needs, like like the one you had. And so now we actually have a marketplace of locksmiths across the country where we create really great you know customer experience. So very incremental uh, evolutions in terms of like the vision and the scope of the company, and it's grown substantially over time. Like I wish I could say when we started the company. I had thought of all these different things, but um, as you get deeper into the space and learn about how to best address customer needs, like these things just become apparent and opportunities show themselves. So, so you have the idea. At what point? What was the time frame between the genesis of that thought and the first? Was it a kiosk that came along first, or was it the ability to uh, remotely store data on the key? What What was the first consumer product? Yeah, it was. It was really. Uh, it was really the kiosk. So a kiosk that could manufacture a key pretty quickly for someone, and then uh, be able to store key information and use that information to like use that manufacturing process and make the key if they were like to log in their account to be able to right. print one. That, that was the idea. So I was in business school, had that concept. I don't have a technical background. Like I've worked around a lot of engineers, but I couldn't build anything. And so I knew the most important thing was to really get some amazing technical team members on board early. And so I um, met up with some great engineers and then pretty quickly it became apparent that like if we really wanted to build something big, you know, it couldn't be like a part-time job and couldn't be a mood lighting. And so I ended up dropping out of school and we formalized things and started raising money and, and kind of building from there. So, you know, it's probably three to four months from really meeting up with those original engineers to actually being pretty serious and dropping out. And how big did that team, that initial team end up being? So, you know, when the idea, the idea initially was yours, but then what did it take to get to that first product? How, how large was that team? Uh, there were two engineers who, who joined me initially, uh, and then we've kind of you know, incrementally grown the team from there. So we're at about 135 people now. Wow. And engineering remains the biggest team in the company. Um, and hardware is tough. You know, people talk about hardware businesses being really challenging to build, and they're super hard. Yeah. Uh, it takes a long time on the product development cycle. So like. So you come up with some idea of prototyping it and making it and testing it is just way longer than software. So um, it was probably about a year and a half before we had like a legit unit in a retail environment. Um, so it's like a pretty hefty like R&D cycle. You have, I mean, you, you have an idea that solves a very straightforward problem, right? I can't get into a door some kind. But then you have to work out, presumably you're working out how you deal with the software piece of it as well like you said, the hardware piece, your customer relations, which presumably are a retail environment, and then the end user support piece. I mean, if I think about it, there probably aren't that more complicated businesses than you could come it's up with. a lot, with, yeah. I, and I was pretty naive, I think, about how challenging <laughs> this business would be to build. Right. We're now benefiting that because there's massive barriers to entry uh, and we're scaling and it's a yeah. very big industry with very little competition. So we're now in an amazing place as a result of that, but... A lot of things to get right. You know, big capital requirements, you know, hardware component, software component, retail relationships, lots of logistics and operations, like a whole bunch of competencies that any one of them could be its own company. And so going back to when you first started this, because you were in business school, yep. did you say you dropped out of business school to do it? I did. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So Good. I mean, you've got to go that route. <laughs> every, every successful founder has to have dropped out of business school. Well, it's funny. Like, like I... It, so I, I started to get more involved in like the entrepreneurship scene at Columbia. Um, a lot of my classmates were scared to drop out, even though they had an idea they were kind of working on. And so they kind of like, you know, half-assed it during school because they weren't all in. Yeah. 
And then when they graduate, they're like, all right, I'm going to give it the real go. And then, yeah, six months later, it doesn't work out. And they're in a really shitty position. I actually viewed it as less risky to drop out. If things didn't work out, I could very clearly go back to school and recruit and do all the normal stuff someone would have done. Yeah. So it, it sounds more risky, but I actually thought it was like the least risky option. And yeah. the school, school doesn't advertise it, but they make it quite easy to take a leave of absence. It. Yeah. it makes sense, especially in the early days of bringing an idea to life is where you find the courage to get after it and do it. I mean, to some extent at that point, did you feel like it took courage or it was just a no-brainer, let's get on with it? Courage is like a big word. The true catalyst, frankly, that really made me want to pursue this full force was I actually applied for some entrepreneurship club that honestly was meaningless, and but I got, I got rejected. And I was like, these guys don't know anything about entrepreneurship. And they rejected me, and it really pissed me off. Yeah, people are motivated by different things, but that rejection catalyzed a desire in me to like, you know, really show that I could build something. And and even though that sounds kind of trivial, like I get fired up by tough stuff and surmounting right. obstacles. And so like that honestly was like the little catalyst that that made me say, all right, you know, I'm really going to deprioritize school and I'm going to start focusing on this and then started building momentum. Yeah, I don't think it does sound trivial. I think I think the uh, motivation to pursue something often seems to come from a place where you know where people tell you either you can't do it or you can't be a part of something or yeah. I, mean, uh, I think it's I think it's candid of you honestly that, that that's part of where this came from you mentioned it very briefly there as something that you like to get into the you know the tougher stuff makes you tick but so so where does that drive come from I mean one of the things we found with in talking with people who've developed any sort of idea entrepreneurs often but there is definitely a drive in there. There's something in the DNA that drives them. Like, do you, Can you pinpoint that, or is that just innate? It's a good question. I mean, I, I think the, the things, when I really think about what motivates me, it's, it's continual improvement and this sense that I'm getting better in all these different aspects. And that could be you know, professional development, obviously, is the obvious one. I think there's, like, physical health, like, you know, pushing yourself on a run or some kind of workout like I think that creates a related but totally different sense of affirmation and motivation so um it's it's doing things that are hard and getting better at doing those things that to me is the most exciting thing like um if I was walking to work every day and I wasn't hit with challenges it, it would that would be a very unfulfilling existence for me and so, like, working with a team that is motivated by similar things and shares similar values, tackling, like, really tough stuff and being successful on those things is, like, the most exciting, motivating thing for me. Who were your, um, in the early stages, I suppose, but probably still, it's still relevant, but where did you find support from initially? Because it's quite a niche it's not a niche problem you're solving, but I can't imagine there were many other people. It's a weird instrument. Do you have many yeah. locksmith friends sitting around saying, no, Greg, you should get after that. That's yeah. great. Like, where we, did you find that initial support? I mean, so we, no, it's, it's really, I mean, we, we've had to raise, we've raised about $150 million. Um, and we early, especially early on the company, we got rejected from so many VCs who were like, you know, why should I care about the locksmith industry and this and that? I think when you're doing something really, truly innovative, it, it sounds very unappealing or people don't get it early on. And so 
it's funny. A lot of a lot of entrepreneurs are worried about people stealing their ideas in the early days. They don't want to tell a lot of people, but like, they should not be worried about that at all. They should be worried about just even being able to convince one person that your idea is right. good at all. Right. But um, yeah, so it's a unique industry. I mean, I, I um, I've had massive support from a variety of places. So obviously, like you know, the team at the company is the biggest area of support. And as we've grown, we've recruited like unbelievably talented operators who are way better than me in so many different parts of the business and and you know it's when i'm team building one of the most exciting things for me is like recruiting someone new who's really strong and just seeing how impactful they are and how poorly we were operating before they came on and um so so it's it's team you know it's board investors advisors i've got several friends who um who also have started their own companies and like you know being able to talk to them about problems is also pretty cathartic too. So a variety of sources, but it's, you know, it's a stressful existence. So you need to have a support network. I, I could be wrong, but my assumption is that your relationship with locksmiths in to the extent that it matters would be similar to Uber's relationship with taxi drivers. What is the feedback in the general industry? Because it seems like you're solving a problem that they sort of rely on as the foundation of their businesses. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. A majority of our sales come from duplicating a variety of keys, brass keys, RFD keys, car keys. That's actually a pretty small portion of brick and mortar locksmith's revenue. It's usually like five-ish, 6%. Got it. Uh, Home Depot, Ace Hardware, Lowe's, Walmart, those companies, 100 plus million dollars in sales for those things. For locksmith services, we are partnering with the highest quality locksmiths and we're sending them really great flow for these services that they're really good at doing. So their experience with us as a company is one of the most important things. And we have a whole goal setting framework and they rate us on their experience with us, oh, okay. you know, an MPS score. And that that's one of our top like 15 company goals. So that's very important. There are a ton of massively fraudulent locksmiths. Yeah. And I would love to, to you know, disrupt and displace those guys all day because they're ripping people's face off. Yeah. They're delivering yeah. low quality of service. So yeah. that's who we're out to disrupt. And we're disrupting that with incredibly high quality locksmiths across right. the country. That, those guys being the guys that when you have unfortunately locked yourself up and it's a problem, they'll come and do it. But it's, you know, $750 for them to. Yeah. They, you know, on the phone. So this is an incredibly uh, fraudulent space. So generally, like in your lockout situation, yeah. people go on Google, they type in, you know, locksmith. Right. A lot of people are bidding on that keyword because it's so valuable. And so you click on that link, it shows a number, you call that number. It's not even a locksmith, it's a call center somewhere. They uh, send that to, you know, some locksmith who is just trying to maximize that single, you know, value out of that interaction with you. They have no incentive to give you any kind of good experience. Yeah, right. um, and, you know, they, they say it's going to be 50 bucks. You end up walking out of there, it's like 500 plus. And it's just, it, it's a $12 billion industry. It has one of the lowest Google ratings of any large offline service industry. The average locksmith is rated 2.1 out of 5 on Google. Huh. And, you know, uh, Google admits that this is like such a challenging category for them. It's like whack-a-mole in terms of trying to control these locksmiths who are so fraudulent and just constantly creating listings to, to you know, take advantage of these vulnerable people. So we're really out to like solve that problem. Yeah, I love that. It's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, assuming this has happened based on how successful your company's become, but at what point did you recognize your first success? At what point and what was it that let you, what was the indicator that let you know, okay, we're, we're, we're really onto something here? It's funny, I was so naive early on about, um, you know, if you would have told me when I started this company that, you know, it still exists now, we've raised all this money and, you know, helping millions and millions of people, 
I would have thought that was the most amazing scenario. But every day I still, I'm like, we haven't made it yet. You know, yeah. we got we got some serious work ahead of us. So you know, I, I I still don't think we're successful. Like we've got tons of work ahead of us. But one of the most exciting points that was very validating to me is when we had our very first prototype of a kiosk. We put it out in like a a bodega very shortly after deploying it a line form to people who were trying to use it and i was like oh this is amazing like it was just such a cool moment where there was validation clear validation that customers were interested in what we we're building and that was like all right there's got to be something here that's a good that's a fantastic example like that's a re- such a visceral thought i can imagine as you squeeze into that bodega people lined up to use that thing that's super cool i took a picture of that and then i sent all the vcs we're trying to raise right. money from see <laughs> And and the Columbia Club that wouldn't let you in. That's right. Screw you guys. Um, what uh, you know, inevitably, it, it, during the process of any successful company being built, there are failures and missteps. Are, are there any of those to note as you've as you've gone through this? And you know, you can get as specific as you want, but I know one of the things our listeners and a lot of the guys I work with here sometimes struggle with is. Yeah, I was bringing an idea back from a perceived failure or or a big hurdle. So I'd be intrigued to hear experiences you've had there it's a a big list it's a big list i mean i I think when i reflect back on really the biggest mistakes we've made almost all of them are related to people like when you're starting a company the team you have the people you have is the single biggest factor into how successful you're going to be by a factor of you know 100x and so uh hiring the wrong people not creating org structure in the right way um, not being thoughtful enough about culture, all those people-related mistakes are the biggest ones by far. Yeah. yeah. Were any of those failures significant enough or challenging enough that at any point you felt like you wanted to throw the towel in on this one or was it always pretty much a, you knew what you were going to be doing? I mean, quitting has never crossed my mind. Failure has crossed my mind, but sure. like not because like I, I was going to quit. It was because like, run out of money or yeah. retailers don't want a product or customers aren't using it. So, and you know, lots of fears there. Like once we had a kiosk that kind of worked, you know, I had to figure out how to get some retailers who wanted it. And we were right. a no name company. And how do you go and talk to, you know, these fortune 100 retailers and, um, skip the line and all these other millions of people who are trying to get in touch how with do you. Do that? <laughs> um, you cast a wide net and, uh, have an awesome I'm, product. <laughs> yeah. That for sure. I mean, honestly, whether it's raising money or business development, you know, relationships drive the yeah. vast majority of success. And the people who you want to talk to in any kind of powerful position, whether that's someone's got a lot of money or retail or you know whatever, they're getting constant inbound. You know, hundreds of emails a day from people trying to sell them stuff right. or take advantage of that power. And the only way to break through that is through an introduction from someone they respect and trust that's high quality occasionally you can write the best cold email in the world and maybe get a response, but it, 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 you know, you, you need to build relationships and get introductions. So we, we early on had, um, had someone who introduced us senior at Seven Eleven, Yeah. And, um, you know, was able to convince them of why we could drive a lot of traffic to their stores and make their customers super happy. Um, and he, you know, he let us, to a pilot and and that went really well and then once we're in 7-eleven that gave us credibility to talk to other retailers and um but uh you know i, I approached many other retailers who just wouldn't wouldn't even give me facetime it's getting that facetime with right. people in positions of power that's 
probably the most difficult for, you know, a first-time founder. Have you been traveling and uh, wandered into a store to grab a bottle of water or a pack of gum or something and, and seen one of your kiosks that you weren't aware was going to be there? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I was in, um, I was at a wedding in Yosemite and I, I wandered into the supermarket in, in next to the, where we were staying and we had a machine there and tested out and I was super pumped. That was probably the first time I've like not intentionally gone into a store and, and seen it, but. Uh, that's, that's, uh, what a great moment. <laughs> I think that's super cool. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things we realize, as we, and I suppose it's, this is probably goes without saying, but um, as any good idea gets off the ground, it has its advocates and its supporters. But were there any um, seeds of wisdom, any piece of advice you were given along the way that you remember or, you know, help, helped you in that journey? I think th there's, there's so many ways to start a company. The the people whose advice was like most valuable were the people who've been in my shoes before they started, you know, one or more companies and they've been through all the struggles that yeah. there's, they're so analogous to, you know, what any founder's gone through. And like, I don't know if there's like one, one tidbit that was like the aha thing, but just being able to talk to someone who they don't know the answer, but they've been in very analogous situations and they can give perspective on either mistakes they've made or how to think about a problem that's like the gold stuff right there is is both because it it's emotionally helpful to be able to speak to people like that you feel more confident that you're making the right decisions and you can share some of that stress uh and their insights are going to be valuable it's real hard even from some you know vcs who've invested in many many companies and even if they've been incredibly successful if they haven't like been in a ceo shoes or founder shoes and operated it's just hard. It's a it's a different world. You got to you got to do it to be able to like I think give that advice that's really valuable. So anyone being particularly critical? Can you even be critical of this idea? Oh yeah. I mean we've uh, from a variety of perspectives. I mean initially, you know we needed we had high capital uh, requirements sure. to build this business with the hardware, and you know we it was very challenging. Wait, VCs don't wake up thinking about the locksmith business. Right. They don't like hardware generally. You know, I flat out have had, you know, very successful VCs tell me that this was like not a good idea or just really uh, not be enthusiastic about it in a critical way. We're all about customer experience. It's our core value as a company. Um, if anyone ever has a bad experience at the kiosk, like that crushes me and we try and bend over backwards right. to make that right and stuff. You know, generally customer experience and naysayers both move in a positive direction when the company like establishes itself and matures you're yeah. getting better on the customer experience every single day and then you know people who were saying this business model wouldn't work you know, clearly we've got something that's proven that works and it's just a question of like execution and scaling so i like the idea actually that there are sort of two camps of criticism can fall into one is you know prescriptive narrow-minded criticism we could call it that um short-sightedness maybe which probably helps give you thicker skin maybe by the sounds of it motivates you a bit more to go and win or win the next one and then the other bucket is uh legitimate criticism or problems based on the service which um also fuels you right you want to make you know every opportunity there is an interaction to be to not only leave that consumer you know uh, feeling like they're happy with their experience, but actually probably feeling happier than if they just had a regular experience because they got a bit of an extra interaction from you. Totally. And and that stuff is so valuable, right? Like yeah. if someone gives us bad feedback on something, like we eat that up and informs how we, you know, 
uh, prioritizing the product side of the business or you know whatever the problem came from. I think a lot of people could learn. A ton of people in all walks of life could learn from that. And there are there are some brands that seem to do that quite well, but it doesn't seem like it's ubiquitous enough still. And where do you where's the idea going? Where, where, where's the idea in five years? We you know the the original concept was to make keys. Well, we really define our vision of now is much broader than that. And and the way we define it is to be the most trusted brand in access solutions. And the way that we think about that is getting people into any kind of physical space. So that can be your home, your office, your mailbox, your vehicle, and doing that through a physical physical product like a key, but also through a service provider like a locksmith. And this is a big $12 billion industry. There's no brand. There's no scalable players. And we want to be the first ever brand so that if you ever need a locksmith service or a key, we are the company that you think of. And if we can build that brand through delivering consistently high-quality customer experience, we're going to have some really magical things happen in terms of you know the outcome and um, the the amount of customers that, that we can help. So that's that's kind of our North Star. Dan, that was great. It's surprising to think that it took that long for someone to innovate such a simple solution. But simple isn't always easy, as we've learned uh, time and again on this podcast. So I'm curious, did Greg talk at all about the traditional lock industry trying to adapt to the disruption of Kimi? We... I mean, we hit on it briefly, and then we spoke about it actually um, prior to recording. But there's definitely a moment in time where we have this window of opportunity for a company or a technology like Kimi to be very successful, as you mentioned, uh, or as we know, the bill, it's a it's a twelve billion dollar industry. So there's opportunity for a fairly large company to come out of this. However, you know, there are technologies that are coming up pretty quickly that are starting to supersede even uh, key technology as a whole. You know, you think about companies like Simply Safe or Nest and their partnership with Yale that provides keyless entry through mobile phones. So there is evolution. As you heard in the podcast, he spoke about um, there being a window in that evolution right now, which is very substantial. I mean, that's th- those technologies are still fairly early adopter uh, type technologies. So while the disruption is coming and he can see it coming, he's disrupting the disruption before it gets here. When do you know, when you're, I mean, how does one know that you have an idea that's in the right moment? I think it's really tough, isn't it? I, you know, there are numerous technologies we've discussed um, in the past, whether it be something like, you know, the mini disc that felt really um, avant-garde in its time, but it was swallowed up really quickly by MP3 and digital music. So I don't know necessarily that you ever fully know. I suspect what Greg's very aware of, because he understands the industry well, is how rapidly advances in technology are eating into what might be his bottom line. And he's not worried that in such a big pie, a $12 billion pie, he's not worried that there isn't room for him to develop a business within that. And a few people I've spoken to, even since since uh, letting uh, them know Greg was coming on the podcast, have all said that they actually use Kimi. So clearly yeah. it's it's uh, finding a home. Oh, so how can people learn more about Kimi? So they, they have a brilliant URL, which is very simple, and it's uh, www.key.me. So if you go there, they can tell you where the kiosks are, how it works, how you can sign up, and learn a bit more about their backstory. Thanks, Dan. That does it for us. This week, we'd like to extend a thank you to Genevieve Garrity. If you'd like to hear how other creators, founders, and inventors thought up their best ideas, be sure to subscribe to Gray Matter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to rate and review an Apple podcast, but more importantly, tell a friend. The more folks that listen, the more ideas spread. If you like what we're doing, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Follow Gray's social pages for more information about Gray and upcoming episodes. Thanks for listening. Gray Matter is hosted by John Petrulis, produced by Joey Scarillo and Christina Torres. 
mixed by Guy Rosemarin at Townhouse Studios. Additional support from David Canavan, Christina Hyde, Grace McDougall, Andy Yancho, John Bicknell, Lydia Dizon, Abigail Hofflinger, and Ryan Cunningham. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.